We're starting a, a new series, which is just going to jump in every now and again. So this is the first of the jumps. And we're going to be looking at uh, some of the famous phrases that Jesus said. They're all found in the gospel, according to John, and they're tied together and known as the I am statements of Jesus Christ. Now, that might seem insignificant to you. I am are just two simple, basic words, and it's a phrase that you and I use very often, pretty much daily. I might say, I am Dom, I'm a church worker, I'm a man, all these types of things. And on a very basic level, the person saying, I am whatever, is making a statement about their identity. That's pretty simple, isn't it? They're making a claim about who they are. After the events of last week in France with the killing of 12 people involved with the magazine Charlie Hebdo, thousands of people tweeted, Je suis Charlie Hebdo. I'm not going to try the French accent. But translated, it means, I am Charlie Hebdo. And this is a defiant statement of solidarity with the magazine. The people who tweeted it, they're identifying themselves with the magazine saying all that Charlie Hebdo stood for, I stand for. It's a bold statement. It's punchy and full of significance. So what's so important about these I am statements that Jesus made about himself? Well, firstly, they aren't the obvious things that a person might say about themselves. There's certain things to be expected to say, aren't there, when I say I am whatever. But Jesus doesn't say the expected thing. I mean, the BBC might expect Jesus' I am statements to be something like, I am a religious teacher, or I am a very moral person, or I am a son of a carpenter. That might be the, the, the label that the BBC or maybe people that you know might put on Jesus and expect him to say. But when we read the Bible, when we read the accounts in John's Gospel, that's not what Jesus claimed about himself. He said wildly extreme things that we would never imagine. Things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the true vine. I am the way and the truth and the life. These ways that he describes himself is totally beyond what we would describe ourselves as, and it's not what we would expect Jesus to describe himself as either. And as I say, over the next, um, every now and again on a Sunday, we'll get the opportunity to, to look at these statements, to consider what it is that Jesus is saying about himself, these striking claims. But having said all this, the most profound elements about all these claims, the I am statements, the most profound thing are the first two words that I started speaking about. The two words, I am. In the Greek language that Jesus spoke day to day, this phrase was just one word. Um, I'm not going to try and put on the accent again. Uh, who knows what ancient Greek sounded like? But um, it's something like Amy or I me, something like that. I am. And there are times when Jesus says this word in striking circumstances, just like our passage today. In John chapter 8 that we heard read for us earlier, Um, He says, I am. 
But the section actually starts a bit before we read from. The scene begins with Jesus saying to the crowd, I am the light of the world. That's one of the statements we'll hopefully be looking at in the future. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's what he says. And to this, the Jews who were listening to him challenged Jesus by saying, you're standing as your own witness, which is a valid point if you think about it, isn't it? Because you wouldn't expect in a court case for the person on trial to stand as their own witness because you need someone else to validate what the truth is, to come to a conclusion. You can't stand as your own witness. That would just be, I said so, wouldn't it? To this, Jesus answered them with two, two audacious points, very bold. The first one being that he knows what is true, but the Jews don't. And secondly, that his father, referring to the Most High God, is his witness. A little later on, Jesus says another provocative thing. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now this gets the Jewish leaders' backs against the wall. As they say, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been a slave to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus seemingly consciously now trying to agitate these guys says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me. Pretty bold, isn't it? And they reinforce, Abraham is our father. But Jesus points out that if they were children of Abraham, then they would be doing what Abraham did, which is believe in Christ. They take this to be an insult and say, we aren't illegitimate children. You know what the common word for that is? We aren't illegitimate children. We're children of God. Jesus is on a roll. So he says, if you were children of God, you would love me. In fact, the truth is, you're children of Satan. Even more insulted, the Jews in turn accuse Jesus of being first a Samaritan, which is to say he's not part of God's people, and also being demon-possessed. This was at the start of our reading. And Jesus is like, no, I honor my Father. Whoever obeys my word shall not see death. And so the Jews ask, who on earth do you think you are? Jesus responds by saying, that's not really for me to say, but Abraham knew me. He met me. That's what the funny phrase here, where it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. What he's saying there is, I knew Abraham. I met him. And the Jews knew this because because they responded by saying, What? You're not even 50 years old. How have you met Abraham? It's like me saying that I met Winston Churchill. Or, well, even further back, I met whoever. I met Abraham Lincoln. It's ridiculous in human terms, isn't it? But then finally, Jesus says this awesome phrase that we're going to be thinking about. Very truly, before Abraham was, I am. 
It's not that Jesus hasn't finished his sentence there. And it's not that he's got bad grammar either. He's actually making an enormous claim in that statement. He is claiming to be the true and living God that was written of in the Old Testament, who met with people like Abraham personally. He is saying that he is the God who made the heavens and the earth, who gave promises to the patriarchs and redeemed Israel from Egypt all that time ago. And the Jews that he's speaking with, they understood that this is what he's saying. Because as soon as Jesus said these two simple words, I am, they picked up stones to kill him with. They perceived that he was claiming to be God. And so they thought he was committing outrageous blasphemy and deserved to die. For us to understand why the Jews thought or knew that Jesus was claiming to be God by saying this seemingly harmless phrase, we need to go right back near the beginning of the Bible um, to the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, and we find a well-known passage that will help to explain things for us. I haven't, I haven't seen the new Exodus movie yet. We were just chatting about it by the door. I've heard that it's not really... It's kind of based on the Bible, but don't expect this story to be told faithfully. But I'm sure this is more exciting than what's written here. Anyway, so let me read this to you. This is where God meets with an old man called Moses, and God introduces himself. This is Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he he had gone over to look. God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God, 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Well, there we go. That's the passage that explains our passage in John. Did you notice at the beginning, there's, I, I absolutely love this passage, but did you notice at the beginning how it is the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? It says, the angel of the Lord. It's funny, isn't it? But this angel is actually God himself, we find out, because it says God called to him from the bush. And on top of this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, there are fiery spiritual beings that serve God that are commonly called angels. But the word angel itself just means messenger or sent one. So I'm an angel stood here being a messenger to you, if you like. You could use it in that sense. But here, Moses meets the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. That's what the text says. This isn't just any messenger, but the messenger of God who speaks for God and who is himself, God. And this God who speaks to Moses tells him his personal name which is the name that he will always be known by and worshipped by. And the name is, I am who I am. Or it could also mean, there's a little footnote in most Bibles, it could mean, I will be who I will be. But this name is also referred to a little later as, I am, I am has sent me to you. And throughout the Old Testament, when this name is mentioned, we have in most of our English translations uh, the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in capital letters. This is because uh, way back when, the Jews were so fearful of saying or mispronouncing God's personal name that they substituted it in their writings for, the word, for their word, Lord, which is Adonai in Hebrew. And this tradition has carried over to our day and in our translations. So you can see, actually, in the passage, um, when it says, God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, there we have that, the I am, that's what's in the text. The I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham. That's the little substitute they, they see. So every time you're reading your Bibles and you see Lord in capital letters, think, I am. It's the Lord's personal name. But what does this name mean? I am. Well, it communicates something of God's eternal quality. It's his eternal quality and character. It's to say he's, he always has been, even before creation, and he always will be, and he always is. From our perspective, you could say he's the eternal he is. But of course, from his perspective, he is the I am. He's self-existent, who is reliant upon solely himself, who is before all things and above all things, it's like he's the, he's the reference point to all reality. He makes sense of everything that is. Additionally, it is his personal name. And we see this in the context of Exodus 3, when I am meets with Moses. Because this introduction between God and Moses brings with it complete confidence and comfort to this shy old man. In a way, his name and the confidence that it gives us is unexpected, isn't it? Because the name I am for God 
it might paint a picture of a mighty deity that isn't interested with puny people like us. And yet, when we read Exodus 3, we see that this awesome I am pledges himself to a poor and oppressed nation. Although he's not reliant upon anything, he chooses to get involved, to roll up his sleeves, and to help. He meets with an old man who has no confidence in himself, who isn't good at speaking, and he raises this Moses up to be one of the greatest men in history. So far from the idea that this living God who is called I Am is distant and aloof and selfish, we see that he's deeply concerned for the world he created. And he uses his power and might selflessly to save those who are helpless, who cry to him for help. Imagine you've just received some, some bad news. You've been diagnosed with a condition that you've dreaded. And you're called into the hospital for an appointment with a, a specialist consultant. You turn up and she asks you to come into her office. And you're really nervous. But you step inside and she takes your hand and says, I'm Dr. Smith, but please call me Sharon. And she explains the situation. Things are actually worse than you thought. But Sharon goes on to say how she can help you and even cure you. She says how she has treated many patients with your condition. And she's helped all of them. Now that little illustration there is to show is we all know really, don't we? How knowing someone's personal name, especially people in authority, it builds a bridge of trust and it, it makes you rely on them more. You feel like you know them. Well, you do know them. A name's a powerful thing. And it's like that here. The Lord, the I am God, is saying, trust me, this is my name. It shows us that God is completely for us. And in his name, we are given complete assurance that he has the ability and also the character to do for us what he promises to. Now, the Old Testament doesn't leave it simply there as I am. But the Lord, this I am God, uses this foundational name and colors it in. He shares other facets of his character to further build up his people. So, example, a couple of examples. Genesis 22, he calls himself, I am will provide. That's with Abraham on the mountain. I am will provide. In Exodus 15, God calls himself, I am your healer. In Exodus 17, he calls himself, I am your banner. In Judges 6, it says, I am your peace. And it goes on. There's, there's numerous ones. And so we see how the Lord... God says his name is I am, but goes on further to encourage his people to communicate more of his loving character. And the right response to these revelations are to trust him and to believe what he says is true. And so fast forward back into John's gospel, where we read from earlier. And the word who is with God and is God is born as a, as a man. The Son of God joins the human race. 
the sent one from God, the messenger of the Father, or the angel of the Lord, you could say. He turns up. He's called Jesus. And what does he say about himself? He says, I am. Now we start to see what a huge statement he is saying. Jesus says, I am. He says to the Jews, the one you read of in your Bibles, who chose the nation Israel, who's like a father to them, who saved them, who comforted them, that's me. That's what Jesus is saying. And just as in the Old Testament, God built upon the foundational name of I am to strengthen his people, so does the Lord Jesus Christ say, I am, but also goes on to say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. As he tells us who he is, our response should be to see in him everything that we've ever needed. The answer to all of our deepest longings. We see who we're made for. And so we're to trust him. The saying goes, what do you give to the man who has everything? That phrase is usually used as some kind of advertisement ploy, isn't it? To flog some weird widget that no one really wants or needs. But what do we give to the God who's got everything? You see, Jesus, the I am, self-existent Son of God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. What can we give to him that we haven't received from him? It's not like he needs anything from us. He doesn't need food from us. He doesn't need our attention. He doesn't need us at all. What are we to give to Jesus? What even can we give to him? You see, in all this, we see that it's not that he needs us, but that we desperately need him. And the beauty of it is Jesus offers us his life freely. And all we're to do is to gratefully receive all that he is. The Christian life isn't so much about what we do for God. That's silly, isn't it? God wouldn't be God if he needed us. We can't add to his beauty or glory or might. The Christian life is about receiving the gift of Jesus Christ and living a life of gratitude, honoring the incredible gift that he is. But this raises the question, doesn't it, of who do we make out Jesus to be? We're chatting about this. I think Matt mentioned it um, in our Bible Mesh uh, study this morning. And it's C.S. Lewis, the writer of uh, the Narnia books. He was also a very gifted theologian. And he came to understand that there are only three options, really, you have to label Jesus with. You've probably heard them before. Jesus saying to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am, can either mean he was a liar or a lunatic or he was actually Lord. Those three things. Was he a liar? He could have been the most deceitful man who ever lived, who managed to trick millions of people throughout the ages, as well as his mother and his brother and closest friends, managed to trick these people that he was himself God. And it would be a wicked trick to play, wouldn't it? 
Because for his sake, millions of people have given up money, homes, comforts, and even their lives. And we see in our passage the Jews who were speaking to Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus because they thought that he was a liar and a blasphemer. Or he could be a lunatic. That's what I'd probably think if someone ran in here saying, I'm God, I met with Abraham. It's the first thing that might come into your mind as well. And some people thought that as well 2,000 years ago. They said, oh, you're demon-possessed. You're out of your mind. But of course, when you read of Jesus, he's the most sane man who've ever lived. He goes around healing people, doing good. Gets you thinking. Or lastly, Jesus could actually be... Oh dear. Jesus could actually be telling the truth, couldn't he? He could actually be Lord. The I am. And many people throughout history have come to believe that what Jesus claimed to be is what he is. Thomas, one of his disciples, near the end of John's gospel, came to this conclusion. When Jesus was risen from the dead, Thomas worshipped him, saying, my Lord and my God. And the very reason why John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote this account that we read of today or so that we can know, that you and I can know for ourselves that Jesus is who he says he is. And not only that, but by trusting him, we would have life. Life which isn't just existing, which just carries on, waiting for the next thing to happen, but what the Bible calls eternal life, which is rich and full, because you're brought into a loving relationship with the God who made you. John writes this in chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So a final thing to mention is that this wonderful personal name of God, I am, it's always and forever in the present tense. That's to say, it's happening now. Jesus was the I am when he met with Abraham. He was the I am when he met with Moses. He was the I am when he met with David and when he met with all the believers in the Old Testament. He was I am when he met with Peter and he was the I am when he met with John. And he is I am today, right now. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. A writer who wrote on this topic called Warren Wiersbe said this, if the founders of the world's philosophies and religious systems were alive on earth today, they could only say, I was. But they're dead, and they can't personally help you. Jesus doesn't say, I was. He is alive and says, I am. He can meet our needs today. He is alive this very moment and offers us a satisfying spiritual life in the present tense. What I claim to be is constantly changing. It differs from day to day. One day I might say I am this, the next day I am that. But that's not the case with Jesus. 
He is always and forever. I am. And he's with us and for us. Some people think that the Bible is irrelevant and has nothing meaningful to say. I've got friends who think that. But I ask, what could be more meaningful than knowing that this Jesus, the one who lived such a selfless life, caring for outcasts, healing the sick, full of grace and truth, as John says, this Jesus is the true and living God who is alive today, and you can know him. That's the most relevant thing on earth in my book. Lord Byron said, if God is not like Jesus Christ, he ought to be. The good news is that he is. Or rather, to put it in a bit of a cliche, Jesus is I am. <laughs>